Well, ladies and gentlemen, it uh, gives me great pleasure to introduce our speaker today, Dr. Hadley Arcus. Dr. Arcus is one of the handful of the most consequential public intellectuals in modern, in modern times in our country. He spent most of his career teaching at Amherst College, where he was the Edward Ney Professor of Jurisprudence. He's the author of numerous scholarly books, one of which you should be uh, all aware of uh, is his classic work entitled First Things, an inquiry into the first principles of morals and justice. Hadley has been arguably the nation's most influential exponent of natural law philosophy and has made his ideas accessible by writing in various popular journals of opinion. One of these journals is called First Things, which was named precisely after his own classic book. His role in defense of the idea of the natural law and its essential role in the foundations of our civilization is the reason why it is so appropriate for us to honor him here at IWP. For those of you unfamiliar with the lexicon of philosophy, the natural law is not something we learn. It consists of the laws that govern moral judgments based on human free will and human reason. It is the law written on the human heart. It is reflected in the little voice of conscience that tells us whether we are doing right or wrong. We at IWP ask our students to wrestle with the question of whether such a law exists or whether all moral standards are simply a matter of personal pre preference and social construction. In his examination of this question, Dr. Arcus compels his audience to ask whether there is such a thing as objective truth or whether our ability to know anything is simply a matter of subjective feelings. It is the answer to such questions that forms the basis of any judgment that people make about the rightness or justice of political decisions. Yet in today's climate of moral and cultural relativism, which rejects the existence of objective moral standards, people make such judgments despite having no coherent principles of what constitutes goodness or justice. The answer to these philosophical questions also form, the answers to these questions also form the basis of the genetic code of different types of regimes. Because different types of regimes behave differently in the international arena, it is essential to study their underlying philosophical principles in order to understand how we can expect them to behave. Dr. Arcus has been particularly concerned with how the success of our constitutional arrangements depends on coherent thought about these matters. He has paid special attention to the application of natural law reasoning to various matters of contemporary controversy, such as military interventions, humanitarian interventions, conscientious objection, 
and the questions, for example, of whether infants who survive an abortion attempt are human beings who possess human rights, or whether it is just to kill them when they have survived outside the womb. In his last years at Amherst, Hadley established the Committee for the American Founding at the college, a group de de dedicated to preserving the doctrines of natural rights taught by the American founders and President Lincoln. Since retiring from his professorship, he founded the James Wilson Institute on Natural Rights and the American Founding here in Washington, named for one of our founding fathers. We here at IWP are truly honored by his presence, and I should add his friendship to our community for his extraordinary contributions to the preservation of the principles of our constitutional republic and our Western civilization, we are proud to, uh, to bestow upon him the degree of Doctor of Laws honoris causa. Hadley. Sir, the floor is yours. Well, my late wife would say, where are you going to put that thing when you get it home? <laughs> I, I was wondering whom Job was describing as he was giving that glowing introduction. Who's walked into the room who fits that? Uh, ladies and gentlemen, about a year ago, I was at a, a ceremony of awards in Washington. And one of the honorees said that he told his wife, he said, darling, did you ever imagine in your wildest dreams that I could be getting an award of this kind. And she said, darling, I don't know quite how to convey this to you, but you're not in my wildest dreams. <laughs> I, I, may not be it, I may not be in yours, but I'm, I'm grateful for the award <laughs> and for the invitation of John and Mac to speak today. Uh, years ago, we brought back to my college, Amherst, one of the most accomplished graduates, a man who had simultaneously earned a degree in law and a PhD in philosophy. And he began his talk by remarking, of all the students gathered in the hall, that your presence here already marks a considerable departure from the principle of equality of distribution. Because if your parents had settled the price of an Amherst education on the child in the neighborhood most deserving of that award, it's not clear that all of you would have been the beneficiaries. <laughs> and later on at a dinner for him, he was, he was asked about a life of teaching and writing. Yes, it all came easily to me. I could spend more time at home with four children aged 17 to 7. And some wise guy gently ribbing him, I won't tell you who, remarked that it must be a considerable advantage to those children to have the concentrated attentions of a father who's at once a distinguished figure in philosophy and the teaching of law. And if those attentions were distributed in the neighborhood according to some principle of merit, it's not clear that all four of those would have been the recipients. <laughs> it's eminently fitting and not the mark of a crimped nature that parents take a heightened responsibility for the children who are theirs. We know enough by now that this, this the most natural of sentiments has not always held true. Not all parents have been protective of their children. Some have been willing to get rid of their children. And some have had a merchandising attitude toward their children. You think of Woody Allen's line, that this is a watch that my father 
on his deathbed, sold me. <laughs> uh, it's been aptly said that the biblical injunction, honor thy father and thy mother, could not be referring simply to the biological father and mother, because if that were the case, it would be enjoining us to honor the man who sired us in the course of a rape. But the obligations can flow only to those men and women who fulfilled the moral definition of parenting, the father and mother who've been there to protect and to nourish. I've always seen the commencements as a family occasion, a day for people who've borne their responsibility, and even for older students who are still bound up with the support of families, perhaps now spouses and children who've been patient and forbearing as a father and mother has been drawn to the remarkable teaching of this school. In one of the most curious lines in Aristotle's politics, Aristotle remarks that the polis, the political order, is prior in the order of nature to the family. Prior? This urban man certainly knew that people were capable of having sex, even in the most moments when governments break down or before they're established. But what is a family? What, is, what constitutes a family? Two people of opposite sexes? More than two? A polygamous or a polyandrous union? Two people the same? What constitutes a family? That sense of things will always depend on a moral understanding that pervades the community and finds expression in the laws. My late friend Alan Bloom once expressed the matter in this way. He said, the children who are products of nature and real love lack something that can be provided only by law and its constraints. It is only within the context of the law that a man can really imagine that his offspring, those offspring from his loins, can people the world. The law that gives names to families and tries to ensure their integrity is a kind of unnatural force, and it endures only as long as the regime of which it's a part. The regime, as John mentioned, the regime. I used to remark to my students that for those of us who study politics, the most consequential data of political life are the data that are involved in the shift from the Cuba of Batista to the Cuba of Castro, from the Germany of Weimar to the Germany of Hitler. One student said, that's interesting. Who's this guy Weimar? These, these are differences in regime, a different moral structure that may encompass the same population, and yet over time the regime may cultivate a strikingly different culture. We used to see the effects of the regime as we noticed the striking differences that emerged between the Germans who grew up for two generations in West Germany or East Germany. In some versions of liberal theory, we're asked to forego our concerns with the regimes in other countries and consider that's simply the business of the local populace. And in this view, the war in Europe and the Second World War might have ended as soon as the Allied armies drove the Germans back to their pre-war frontiers and deprived them of the fruits of their aggression. But the understanding was held among American statesmen at the time that the, those aggressions emerged from the very character of that regime. And this war will not be done until the Nazi party is destroyed and that regime is remade from within. For those who study policy, politics, and statecraft, the regime continues to define the main coordinates in engaging our relations with other countries. 
And when it comes to the study of statesmanship, statecraft, it's striking that the clearest model continues to be our own Abraham Lincoln. What he demonstrated in that remarkable record was that the first task of the would-be statesman would be to get clear on the nature of that regime he would establish, or in Lincoln's case, preserve. And in Lincoln's case, the, the task was made harder by the fact that key parts of the political class and the public were being drawn away from the anchoring premises of the regime. After the Battle of Gettysburg, uh, Lincoln tried to prod General Meade to getting himself together and striking at Lee's army before they made it so their way back across the Potomac. And Meade held back, and in holding back, lost the moment. He, he telegraphed to Lincoln, we can take consolation, at least in this. We have driven the enemy from our soil. And Lincoln turns to his secretaries and say, how do I convey it to these people? It's all our soil. They're not two separate countries. When your own people begin to absorb the premises of the other side is when you start being in trouble. But, but the, that, the, it was even worse. For Lincoln pointed up Senator Pettit of Indiana, who declared that the self-evident truth of the Declaration of Independence, that all men are created equal, was a self-evident lie. Here was an officer of high standing in the Republic built on the premise, all men are created equal, the only rightful government over human beings dependent on the consent of the governed. We do not rule human beings the way humans, humans are compelled to rule horses and cows. Here was a man of high standing in the Republic, and he had an utter contempt for the premises on which his own authority rested. Mac urged me to tell a story I just recall from Al Bernstein at the Naval War Academy years ago telling me that his students were all seasoned veterans of the war in Vietnam. Uh, they were willing to die for their country, but they're also the children who were students in the 60s. They'd absorbed the premises of cultural relativism. They didn't think, as Lincoln did, that the, found, the, the Republic was founded on moral principles that were applicable to all men at all times. It was conventional. There, the rules that defined the American regime were rather like the rules that defined the game of baseball or chess. And in that case, your willingness to die for your country was the equivalent of your willingness to die for the infield fly rule. If we have a relativist perspective on these things. The first task, again, especially in the midst of the moral crisis, is to teach anew the premises of the regime we're trying to preserve. But the second task of the statesman is to draw on those arts of prudence and conjecture that could be gleaned only from experience. You know, how did Lincoln know that the border states like Delaware and Maryland would not fight to end slavery, though they would fight to preserve the Union, but how did he know that after the price was paid in blood of husbands and sons lost, even people in those border states would be willing to strike at slavery as a war measure for the sake of shortening the war. That's not the kind of thing one knows through syllogisms. It's the kind of thing that can be extracted only from experience with a reflective wisdom. It's the kind of teaching found in this place and this faculty. If people have forgotten Aristotle's lessons of how deep those differences in regime were in shaping our lives. Aristotle remarked in the Ethics that of all the sciences to be found in any place, it was political science that was the architectonic science, the, arch the, the science that provided the first order principles that would give proportion and place to everything else. 
Now, I've seen political scientists engaged in mass at conventions. They wouldn't strike you as the kind of people exactly fitted to rule the world. But political science is, at its best, the science of reflecting on the principles of justice, the nature of the just political order, and the things we are justified in imposing on people with the force of law. Well, what makes that, of all things, the architectonic science? And the beginning of the answer is that it's part of what we used to call the moral sciences. And the logic of morals kicks in whenever we start considering the things that are higher or lower, more or less desirable, good or bad. As Thomas Aquinas taught us, the good or the right is that which everyone is obliged to do. The wrong is that which everyone is obliged to refrain from doing. The good is higher than the bad, more desirable than the bad. And that axiom bears on the question of what was higher and lower in the things we can know. We can know how to drive a car, but we may drive an ambulance, or we may drive for the mafia. And so we may ask, which is higher, the knowledge of how to drive or the knowledge of the ends, which make driving justified or unjustified, rightful or wrongful? Higher than the knowledge of driving the car is the knowledge of those moral ends. That leaves us with the uncomfortable question, well, who does the highest work? in this society? Who has the highest art or science? What about those people working on new drugs that deliver us from cancer, high blood pressure, diabetes? Would that be more important than something like political science? Well, as important as such life-saving research is, science itself still works under the governance of moral principles that are even higher. For it turns out that even the densest among us will assume some moral limits on the way science goes about acquiring what it wants to know. Some of the research done by Germans in the Second World War had considerable utility for people in other countries. If we want to know just how icy were the temperatures that pilots could absorb when they were downed in the North Atlantic, what better way to test the proposition than to dunk some prisoners? Who was the saying goes, we're going to die anyway. And yet we seem to be clear in this country, or clear until recently, that we should not do lethal experiments when there were alternatives that were non-lethal, and we shouldn't do experiments with lethal risks on patients without their consent. Those moral inhibitions could indeed slow the pace and reach of research, but we seem to understand that there were serious moral limits, even on what scientists deeply craved to know. And now in our own day, we are faced with the choice of whether we'll do research on stem cells extracted from embryos, killing those nascent lives, or whether we'll use adult stem cells or the newly contrived induced pluripotent stem cells that are formed from reprogramming adult cells. That's to say, they can be contrived without killing live human beings. In other words, we make a decision at the top of the state about the kind of work we think legitimate and salutary, the kind of work we are willing to encourage by removing the moral and legal inhibitions and by licensing, encouraging, promoting that work. And so a whole new industry arises with many people working in labs. The Supreme Court in the 1950s and 60s began to strike down the laws that barred pornography. And as those laws receded, we've seen pornography becoming a vast new lucrative industry with young women drawn from what looked like respectable families, 
drawn now into this new occupation. My point is that people in official authority make decisions at the top of the state, and that will have the most palpable effect on the way that thousands of people will be permitted or even encouraged to make their livings. Aristotle curiously had it right. Political science is the architectonic science. It gives proportion and scale to everything else. It decides even which occupations we think fit for a decent people. This is the age of diversity and enrollments, and college has been recruiting students more and more from exotic places overseas. But do we care then about the kinds of moral commitments they bring to the college if they've absorbed the principles of those regimes from which they come? As Aristotle taught us, the good man is the good citizen only in the good regime. So to pick up a line of John's, what if we had brought to the campus in the 1930s a German student who was loyal to the Nazi regime, a student who had absorbed within his character the principles of the Nazi regime. Would we have gone back, would he have gone back and used his skills as an engineer or an architect to work for Albert Speer on the project of finding the most efficient way of delivering people to killing centers? We can hardly do better than to recall that notable example of that famous member of the Harvard class of 1921, Isoruko Yamamoto. Later, Admiral Yamamoto, an early advocate of naval aviation, the man who commanded the Japanese fleet of ships and planes for the attack on Pearl Harbor. People may not recall that Yamamoto had a real affection for the United States, the Harvard class of 21. He was opposed to the war of the United States. He was opposed to the invasion of Manchuria. He was opposed to the pact with Hitler and Mussolini. He was so unreliable that he was watched closely by military intelligence. Nevertheless, he thought that his, the highest honor was to die in the service of the emperor and the empire. He liked America, but his devotion belonged to the Japanese regime. Years ago, New York tried to limit its public higher education to citizens, and the Supreme Court struck down that move. But the court missed the importance of a critical moral question. By the time a person has reached college age, why would it be not be apt to ask, are you clear on your own moral commitments? Are you clear on the character of the regime that commands your allegiance? For if you're committed, say, to using your skills as an engineer in the service of Assad in Syria, or Kim Jong-un, well, what moral principle would oblige us to tax the American people for the sake of perfecting skills for the service of what may be an evil regime quite hostile to our own? Would it be reflective merely of a narrow parochialism that we even raise this matter? Or would we not show respect for the student himself as a moral being with serious commitment standing before him or show that we as a country do take as profoundly serious the moral terms on which we live together? During the legendary debate between Abraham Lincoln and Stephen Douglas, Douglas said, well, God made good and evil and bade us choose. And Lincoln thought he was jesting with this, but the second time he did it, he weighed in to explain that, no, God was not pro-choice on the matter of evil. He said, for Lincoln, this was the degradation of democracy, that democracy was all process, no substance. It didn't matter what is chosen 
through the vote of a majority. It could be slavery, it could be genocide, as long as it was done in a formally democratic way with the vote of a majority. About 40 years, late, 40 years ago, I was in a debate in New York with the ACLU over the matter of some self-styled Nazis with swastikas and banners and armbands parading through a neighborhood in Skokie, Illinois, containing survivors of the Holocaust. And Dave Hamlin of the ACLU said at the time, we must be free to hear the Nazis because we must be free to choose the Nazis. But the Nazis represented the rejection in principle of the very premises of a regime of elections. For the re Nazis rejected the principle that all men are created equal, the only rightful government over human beings depends on the consent of the governed. To treat the Nazis as, as legitimate now, as something legitimate for free people to choose, was to say that the, the truth of the Declaration of Independence was not a truth. It was simply one opinion, no more or less likely to be true than anything else on offer in the landscape. To say that we are free to choose the Nazis is to say that a majority is free to vote away regime of elections for minority and for the next generation. And as we acquiesce to that move, we do a moral surgery on ourselves, for we talk ourselves out of the moral premises that supply the ground of our own freedom. We had several years ago demonstrations on the part of people mainly from Mexico and Central America who've been here illegally, but who are claiming now a right to become citizens. But if people claim a right to be citizens, could we ask of them simply this? Are you willing to commit yourself to preserve a regime of citizens. That is, when you enter the voting booth, you understand you're not really registering a preference. You are affirming the rightness of a regime of elections, which means you're affirming the right of people around you not to be stripped of that right. So do you understand that you may be obliged then not to vote for a castrate party which could end free elections in this country? In his book, Days of Fire, I move to my conclusion. In his book, Days of Fire, Peter Baker recalls the crisis that arose over the elections for the Palestinian Authority in January 2006. The Israelis were concerned that Hamas would win the parliamentary election, could win it, for Hamas was the most violent faction, utterly opposed to peace with Israel. Elliot Abrams, as one aide, was opposed to letting them on the ballot they should be disqualified by their own record of violence. But President Bush thought that the fundamental question here was, as Peter Baker said, did democracy really mean leaders chosen by popular will, even if it resulted in a government run by a party the United States considers a terrorist party? The election administered a jolt when it produced a majority for Hamas. Bush wondered what to do, but Condoleezza Rice said, well, the elections were free and fair. And so Bush said, we'll have to accept the result. No? The Obama administration would face a comparable situation several years later on whether the Muslim Brotherhood should be on the ballot in Egypt. They were, they won, and as they sought to change the regime and make their rule permanent, they triggered in turn the intervention of the military. Now, whether that made a difference in the long run, we cannot, of course, say, and yet it was arguable that neither our interests nor the interests of people in these areas were served by encouraging people to believe that Hamas and the Muslim Brotherhood 
were parties legitimate for them to choose. But in both cases, people of high rank in this country fell once again into the assumption that democracy was all process and no substance. They could not see that certain parties were animated by principles quite at odds with the moral premises of free elections, or that democracy as a moral project recognized ends that a free people should not permit themselves to choose. Our leaders pressed upon people in other countries, whether they did it wisely or not, they pressed upon people in other countries a regime of elections, and they did it with the most truncated sense of the moral character of what they were pressing. Justice Holmes famously said in one of his quotable lines that a page of history is worth a pound of logic, but ex experience keeps revealing the deep falsity of that line, for we keep discovering that an ounce of logic or the careful study of political philosophy and statecraft may spare us a generation or two of misspent experience and history. For we do often run into the tragedy of lessons we had never taken the time to learn. Those deep lessons on statecraft and the rightful ends of politics are the things that mark the rem remarkable, the vocation of this remarkable school and that formidable band of brothers and sisters who've joined together in a shared conviction that would be hard to find in most colleges and universities in this land. I wish we had John's talk and put that in the place of the talk given by all the presidents in this country at colleges throughout for these next couple of weeks at commencements. But again, we're brought back to families. This is a day when we celebrate the people who've borne the sacrifices made for them. I'd record my own admiration for what the graduates have done in taking up the curriculum offered by this rarest of institutes and for the faculty who've had the wit and the experience to bring you that curriculum. So to the graduates, I'd say congratulations for what you've accomplished here. Thanks to John Lanchowski and Mac Owens for the honor of inviting me to stand here this day with you. Thanks very much.